Well, the party in gold and silver, over for the time being. Gold back below $1,700 at $1,677. Silver back below $20 at 1949 I was listening to the Financial Sense News Hour. Jim Paplava, who probably many of you know, uh, if you listen to internet financial podcasts, he is so bullish on silver. It's pretty rare for him to come out like that. So maybe some long-term, even midterm, good news on silver. You're hearing a lot of bullishness. I mean, I've been hearing this since like 2010, silver. You know, like I'll never forget actually being at the Delta, the Chelsea Delta Hotel. I'll never forget it. It was maybe 2013 and I was at the hotel bar and... Somehow we were talking about, you know, silver and precious metals. Everybody sitting around that bar, like all five of us, had silver. Everybody had owned silver. Obviously, that didn't work out for anybody at the time. I mean, maybe slightly, but nothing that anybody was hoping for. So call me a touch jaded, but you do get the sense that maybe this time... It is a little more promising. Frankly, everything looks like it's in the buy zone, not financial advice. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. You know, I've been thinking about this whole geopolitical situation. Another frame on it is this is a contest of who will politically survive. Like the West seems to want to get rid of Putin, something you hear very often. Like if we only got rid of Putin, it would solve everything. I'm completely not convinced of that. I have a feeling the guy who would replace him would be a 10 times harder liner than Putin. I don't think he's Putin being Putin. He's not going to leave someone in who's going to be all nice. He's going to put the meanest person you've ever met who isn't reasonable. He's going to put that person in charge. So, yeah, so that whole strategy. So and it seems like his strategy is to outweigh the West politically. You know, like, for example, November with the elections, maybe somehow. I mean, the Republicans in Congress seem pretty, you know, gung-ho on the whole situation in Ukraine as well. So I'm not sure that's really going to solve any other. I'm not sure that's going to help him. But these governments in Europe, uh, you could see these kind of hard right governments that previously had sympathies with Russia. You know, I put sympathies in quotes because it's not exactly accurate. But you know what I'm saying? Who were previously, you know, taking photo ops and, you know, uh, like the Italians there. You could see he may be waiting for just elections to happen. And you get the sense that the West is waiting for him to be taken out. Until then, like, I don't see how any of this changes. Like, there has to be a change of will, one would think. Now, turning to the markets a little bit, I mean, the headline again are these gilts. The British bonds, I mean, they barely kept them down for a week. I mean, when were we talking about them? Was it last week or two weeks ago? I think it was last week. So they barely kept them down. And now, they. let's just take a look. I mean... UK 10-year government bonds at 4.442%. My understanding here, let me bring up a chart, is they brought in the special operation when they hit 4.47, September 27th, so two weeks ago. Okay? So we have had a week respite. I mean, you look at, it's a V-shaped recovery in British bonds here. So the 
UK has come out and said that they are going to extend, what is it? CNBC here, dysfunction in this market and the prospect of self-reinforcing, quote, fire sale dynamics pose a material risk to UK financial stability, according to the Bank of England. So, I mean, this is pretty serious stuff here. We have pension funds who are levered up, from what I understand, on these bonds. They are on the brink. And so we have another move, another intervention. I mean, how long does this go on for? And at what point can they step away? And what does it mean if they can't? All things to consider. And meanwhile, our bailiwick, commodities, gold and silver, frankly, not financial advice, are looking like strong buys. Look at gold. And again, it truly is not financial advice. I mean, I'm just thinking out loud here. But look at gold at 1665. That's attractive. Let's look at copper here. 344. I mean, really, my inner speculator was hoping for maybe an October crash so we can pick up the pieces at, you know, $3 or 275 on copper and ride that one into the sunset uh, for all of these things. So, Cash truly is king, despite 10% inflation. We're waiting, I think, for another inflation print this week. So business as usual here. This has just become the normal state of things. We have a very interesting program here, and this brings a whole other topic. We have George Hemingway, a fireside chat with Blair McBride, our reporter here, our production editor at the Northern Miner, and this was at the Global Mining Symposium. And Blair grills him, as you're going to hear, He grills George Hemingway on really what the industry needs to do to improve its image. I have a bit of a different take on it. I don't think the industry needs to do a darn thing. I think all the industry has to do, all companies need to do is wait. And just like we were seeing when oil prices started to go through the roof, was that like March, April? Remember that? And within like, You know, even recently, I heard Bloomberg anchors saying one of the anchors was like, do I have to go over there myself and put in a drill and and to, you know, drill baby drill for some oil? So even Bloomberg anchors are getting ready to, you know, go prospecting for oil and to put it in themselves if these companies won't do it themselves. So all to say, I mean, how long did that last? A couple of months, three months? And now, like... All I'm saying is time is on the mining industry side. And all I would do from the mining industry perspective is have your values in order because what should miners be in 200 years and 300 years? What is a mining company? Should we still need them? Okay. Should fusion not solve our problems and should we not have replicators? You know, which just like Star Trek, our food comes by digital command. What if we don't have that? Then what is mining industry? What are their values? What do they represent 300 years from now? And I'll tell you what I think it is, which is I think is what it should be right now. We are stewards of the earth. We, you know, are the geologists. We are the experts in the earth. And so we are the best suited stewards of these natural resources here. And this is not the 1980s anymore. We have learned 
And we have learned on Overdrive, there have been a billion documentaries detailing, itemizing in detail every error we have ever committed. So we are overcompensating with CSR or ESG. And we're going to have another good talk that I did with Theo Yameoko in a coming episode from EY on this very topic. But we have already done a ton here. We have done more than many others. And I am speaking generally here. I'm sure there are companies out there that need to improve these things. There are probably individuals. But as an industry, all I know is we've been talking about this going on five years at these conferences and maybe more. And maybe more, like where this is like front and center main discussion, ESG, to the point where you don't even get funding anymore. Okay, like that's it's been to me, it's a total victory for ESG. Okay, so all to say, to speak generally, the mining industry has gone a long ways to put its house in order. And frankly, I don't think it needs to do a darn thing other than implement a value structure at their company that says, we are stewards of the earth. Okay, we are stewards of the natural resources of this finite planet. So that means we're not going to go out of our way to make a mess. We are going to work with the people that are around these natural resources, and that includes making them benefit. All the obvious stuff that should have happened a long time ago, but that had to be implemented, and still some people need to be, you know, need to be woken up on those things. But that is my take on it. So you will get George Hemingway's take. He does think there needs to be better communication. So anyway, so we have a wonderful program here for you, an in-depth discussion with George Hemingway. And coming up, we have Scott Sheldon, Go Metals in Canada. They have an incredible project in Quebec, a nickel-copper project. So we're going to learn about that now on this week's CEO Spotlight. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer. And on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Scott Sheldon of Go Metals for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome Scott Sheldon, president of Go Metals for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast and this week's CEO Spotlight. Scott, welcome to the program. Thanks, Adrian. Happy to be here. Excellent. Well, we're happy to have you. And we see that you are have a big project in Quebec that you are working on, the HSP Nickel Copper Project. Tell us about Go Metals. Tell us about the project. Tell us what you're working on. Sure. So we've we've been around since uh, 2012. Uh, we started off as a, a gold explorer in the Yukon. Uh, back in 2018, uh, we decided to transition to battery metals. And in 2019, we ended up staking a property in southeastern Quebec, and that's our current HSP project. And at the time, we thought it was prospective for nickel copper sulfides. And and yeah, so we're kind of moving moving from that. So it's interesting. So you consider, and I guess a lot of people would these days, uh, so when you say a kind of battery metal project, you're talking about nickel and copper, not necessarily, say, lithium. Correct. Yes. We targeted Quebec uh, just for its its success in in nickel, although they also have it seems that they're turning out to be a, a lithium uh, province as well. So there's there's lots going on in Quebec. It's a pretty exciting place to be right now. 
Right. And tell me about that. How is working in Quebec? Do you find the government and just, you know, the communities? Are people enthusiastic? Is it hard? Uh, tell, tell us about what it's like to work in Quebec right now. Well, Quebec is previously working in the Yukon. We we love that as well. That's that's a great province to work in. But we're finding Quebec is is also a it's a, a world class destination for mining. And um, yeah, we're, we're getting a lot of support from uh, not only the government and local communities, but We've also found some some great contractors to work with out there. So it's a one-stop shop. It's uh, It's been really good. Yeah, that's crucial. You know, a lot of the issues that a lot of companies have are finding talent. I mean, maybe that's one of the good things if things slow down a bit, that it's a little easier to find the the employees that you need simply to get these things done, to get the equipment as well. True. Yeah, the, the last couple of years have been challenging. This year seemed a little better than than last year, but um, but yeah, no, we're we're confident it's going to work out going forward here. Okay, excellent. So the your main project is this uh, HSP project in Quebec. So how is it going? What are you working on? Have you started drilling? Yes. Yeah, so we pretty much started getting excited about it last year. Uh, that was our first boots on the ground. Uh, we we'd done some early uh, geophysics using an air tem uh, to try and pick up some of these anomalies. And uh, so we went out last year and we ended up finding mineralization very close to surface uh, for about six of the targets that, that we'd approached. And so this year we, we had a fairly high degree of confidence going back that uh, we'd be able to hit something in our drill program. We were lucky to hit on all, on all five targets that we drilled. It was a relatively small program. Uh, we only drilled basically 10 holes, um, just punching two into, into each target just to give give each one uh, a chance. And uh, we, were, we were pleasantly surprised. Fascinating. And did you know about this area or this, uh, you know, this prospect uh, before? How did you find this project? Yes. Yeah, so, so it's kind of in a, a, or it was in a remote area. There was a government survey done in the mid 90s uh, that was followed up by, by a crew who tried to find the source of the original low low uh, definition EM survey that was done, and they weren't weren't able to find it. Uh, so what we did is we did a higher resolution survey uh, over about 55 square kilometers, and uh, that's when the the targets starting started popping for us. Uh, so what we did is we went back with a beat mat, which is a it's basically a, a ground a ground sled that you pull pull across the uh, across the ground. And we were able to zero in on some of these targets and basically dig them out with uh, trenches. So it's basically a, a new area, especially where we are. The access has been made a, a little easier because of the new Romaine complex of, uh, of hydro dams that they've put in. Uh, so they basically put four new hydro complexes uh, along the river that we're um, about 10 to 15 kilometers away from. Uh, so that's, that's afforded us some pretty good roads. Um, Hydro Quebec doesn't mess around when they when they build their roads, and um, and it's yeah, it's definitely helped us uh, going forward. You know, one of the advantages you hear about working in Quebec is actually the electricity, something we used to kind of take for granted. Are you guys positioned over there to take advantage of like I, I guess you are of like you know the uh, the low cost energy? Yeah, that's that's another benefit of working in Quebec is they they have such a great hydro hydro energy infrastructure and uh it's it's fortunate that we're we're fairly close to one of their it's actually the Romaine 4 dam which is the newest one and we're roughly 15 kilometers from from our southern edge of our property 
So it's, uh, yeah, no, that definitely has a, a bonus going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like the way you were able to kind of drill and find this target here, were you using like newer technology? Is that how you were able to find it over, say, other people? Yeah, no, the, te the technology has, has improved. We had the benefit of working with Steve Balsh, who's developed his own uh, EM system called the AirTem. And uh, he's had past success with that uh, on, in other areas of Quebec. And, uh, and it worked really well for the, for the project that we're on. It was a little nerve-wracking going in, be, being the maiden drill program uh, in in the area, um, but uh, but yeah, it was it was fun. Um, it was pretty exciting seeing some of that core come out. Obviously, we're still waiting on assays, um, so we only have visual confirmation. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's been fun so far. Okay, and how is the schedule looking then? So you've done some drilling, and how does it look in the next six months, a year? Uh, what's the schedule? Yeah, so uh, waiting for assays is a big part. Um, we're trying to rush uh, a few of those samples just so we we have a kind of a confirmation on on what we believe. But at, at this point, we're starting to go back to our contractors. We're we're actually going to be in Quebec this week. They're uh, Quebec is hosting the Explorer Conference, um, so it'll be a great a great place for us to to talk with our contractors and and meet new investors. Um, but yeah, we're we're trying to see all the options that we have at this point, whether it's a winter program or whether it's waiting to the to the spring it's um yeah we're we're trying to see what we have available to us okay excellent and speaking of investors how has your reception been like are you guys on the tsx venture uh, how is the investment side of things we're we're actually on the cse so we we've been flying under the radar for for some time we we basically weren't trading very much at all but after the news, it uh, it seemed to blow up quite a bit. It looks like our our average is about seven, or actually it's closer to eight hundred thousand shares a day now. Um, so it's we had a tremendous response by the market. Um, so that was that was pretty exciting as well. Sounds very good for the especially the Canadian stock exchange. Yeah, I mean, and more and more companies I've noticed are. I, I guess it's probably lower fees and everything. There's all that's a whole other discussion, I guess. The CSE over the TSXV. It has been a good story for the CSE um, and just mining in general too to see that you know, this kind of response is possible. So, so we feel it's a it's a good story for everyone. Fascinating. Now, tell me about the team. How big is the company? I mean, you guys are just uh, you're an explorer. You know what some people call junior mining company. Uh, uh, tell me about the people that are working on getting this project going. So as we grew up in the gold downturn, uh, we learned to be pretty, pretty lean and mean. So we're we're a pretty small outfit, and we've kind of carried what we've learned from that uh, into our new uh, battery metals uh, ventures. Uh, so we're uh, right now it's it's just myself and Harley Slade, who's our VPX, and uh, and we have four directors on the board as well. Uh, we have my dad and Brian Murray. Uh, they've got a, a rich history together um, working. In the junior junior markets, and uh, and we also have Adrian Smith, who's another uh, geologist who's who's been uh, invaluable for his his uh, help and in, in uh, especially in the drilling. Well, it sounds like a classic Canadian mining story here. So as we close, uh, what is it that you want investors to know? What are you excited about uh, as we move forward here? Yeah, the key is this was a first pass, um, so we're. We're pretty excited about what we can do going forward, uh, especially going back and and targeting some of these systems that that we've learned quite a bit from uh, even just putting two two drill holes into each target. Uh, we've we've basically figured out what we think is the the true dip in orientation. So 
it'll be fun to go back and and target these uh, these surface structures um, with a, with a lot more holes. So we we, th we think there's quite a bit of upside here. Okay, excellent. And just to be clear, like this is a would you say this is a nickel focused project with some copper or is it both? Uh, how would you characterize this deposit as far as you know it so far? Yeah, we're, so we're seeing we're seeing nickel, we're seeing copper, we're even seeing some PGE um, and some cobalt. Uh, we'll, we'll have a better idea once we get the assays back uh, what percentages we're dealing with, um, but it's it's a pretty well well-rounded project. And it depends on which uh, which target we're looking at as well. So it's kind of a nice basket of, of battery metals. Um, and the, we're taking those those values from last year's uh, trenching program. Um, so that's how how we're getting these uh, different elements. Okay, excellent. So if people want to find out more, uh, they can go to gometals.ca. Scott Sheldon, President and CEO of Go Metals, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. All right, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you once again to Go Metals for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Again, go visit them at gometals.ca. And turning to the website, this is uh, Bloomberg News via mining.com, how a ban on Russia's mining giants could shake the metals world. So more just earth-shaking moves in the metals market as a result of geopolitical events. A possible ban on Russian supplies by the LME, the London Metal Exchange, would be a seismic event for the metals industry, cutting some of the world's biggest companies off from the main global marketplace. You just think to yourself, I hope they've thought this through. The exchange has yet to make a decision, but on Thursday launched a formal three-week discussion process on the possibility of banning Russian metal potentially as soon as next month. In practice, a ban would simply mean that metal from Russia, which accounts for about 9% of global nickel production, 5% of aluminum, and 4% of copper, could no longer be delivered into any warehouses around the world in the LME network, which store metal used to deliver against futures contracts when they expire. But the debate and potential fallout provide a stark case study of how deeply the LME is intertwined with all corners of the physical metals industry. Despite being a private company owned by Hong Kong exchanges and clearing, the exchange's decisions have far-reaching consequences for the way in which metal is priced and traded globally. Again, you just hope they're thinking this through. To be clear, the vast majority of global metal is sold from producers to traders and consumers without ever seeing the inside of an LME warehouse. And big producers, including top Russian groups United Co. Roussel International, PJSC, and Norilsk Nickel almost never sell their metal directly on the LME. But the exchange nonetheless plays several vital roles. First, it's a market of last resort for the physical metals industry. Stocks of metal in the global network of LME warehouses can be drawn down in moments of shortage, and in times of glut, excess inventories can be delivered to the LME. In recent months, traders have been bracing for a glut particularly in aluminum, amid concerns about the state of the global economy. As some buyers shun Russian metal, traders have expected that aluminum from Roussel would be among the first to be delivered to the LME, with some expecting hundreds of thousands of tons of inflows. Roussel has denied it is planning to deliver large quantities of its metals to the exchange. Kind of a weird little sub-story right there. Should the LME go ahead and ban new deliveries of Russian aluminum, that would remove the potential overhang of stock. Yeah, I mean, okay, that's very short term. 
When Bloomberg first reported on the LME's plans for a discussion paper last week, aluminum prices jumped as much as 8.5%, the biggest intraday rise on record, as traders who had been anticipating an inflow of Russian metal rushed to reverse their short bets. As of Friday, prices were up about 10% from last week's 19-month low. Of course, the LME is considering this drastic step because it's worried about a similarly disruptive possibility if it doesn't take action. That Russian metal that many consumers refuse to touch will flood onto the exchange and cause its prices to stop being useful as global benchmarks. In fact, one of the reasons it is considering a quick rollout of any possible ban is that a decision to proceed could prompt a rush by holders of Russian metal to deliver it on the exchange before the restrictions come into place. I find this all very bizarre. Continuing on LME deliverable, any move by the LME would also have ramifications beyond the warehouse flows. For example, some contracts between producers, traders, and consumers stipulate that the metal should be, quote, LME deliverable, end quote, meaning that a ban by the LME could lead to contracts being broken. Well, you know, just being a podcast host here and stepping back, if you have a major inflation problem, global, but also in the Western world, not unaffected, I'm not sure that eliminating metal supply, a major supplier of metal, to the LME is going to help our inflation problem. And they're worried that the market is going to be flooded with Russian metal. Isn't that what we want? I mean, Doomberg is out there saying what we need is a flood of oil. What we need is a flood of commodities to get prices down. And if you want to hurt Putin, make prices go down. Okay, all this is going to do is, from what I read here, leave a comment if you come to a different conclusion on this article. But it sounds to me like this is going to raise prices, which to me only helps Russia, not hurts it. Continuing on, as a result, any move by the LME could create headaches for Roussel and Nornickel, as well as their biggest customers. Glencore in particular has a vast multi-year contract to buy commodity-grade aluminum from Roussel. There's already an expectation at the companies that the consultation process launched by the LME will make it more difficult for customers of Roussel and Nornickel to fund working capital using the metal as collateral, according to people familiar with the matter. And then only a couple more paragraphs here, but this is key. The simple fact of the discussion is likely to cause Nornickel sales to Europe to drop significantly, given that it creates uncertainty at a crucial time of the year for sales negotiations, one of the people said. So if Germany has like 45% inflation, last I heard, German industry is on its back, is halting nickel deliveries to Europe or reducing them dramatically? I don't see how this helps. That means that a ban by the LME could lead to the Russian companies being forced to accept lower prices. And I think we've gotten a telegraph from Russia saying we're not going to accept lower prices. Again, the key to lower prices is flooding the market. Now, I may be totally wrong on all this, and these people know the markets better than I do. So let's let's keep going here. Nornickel, again, was weighing options to redirect some sales to the east if sanctions against Russia didn't allow it to maintain its current sales structure, CEO Vladimir Potanin said in an interview with RBC TV in September. At the end of the day, this won't change supply-demand balances, but it does mean we'll have metal looking for a home, said Colin Hamilton, Managing Director for Commodities Research at BMO Capital Markets. Someone somewhere will buy that metal at a discount. So 
just a head-spinning article there. Not sure what's going on there. Continuing on, the gold market's great migration sends bullion rushing east. So I brought this up with Jeffrey Christian, and he did say that gold is going east. Now, this is Bloomberg News via mining.com, so let's just follow up on this. There's a global migration underway in the gold market. As Western investors dump bullion, while Asian buyers take advantage of a tumbling price to snap up cheap jewelry and bars, rising rates that make gold less attractive as an investment mean that large volumes of metal are being drawn out of vaults in financial centers like New York and heading east to meet demand in Shanghai's gold market or Istanbul's Grand Bazaar. In fact, it can't move fast enough. Logistical issues combined with quirks of the market are making it difficult for traders to get enough bullion where it's wanted. As a result, gold and silver are selling at unusually large premiums over the global benchmark price in some Asian markets. We're bringing this up with Jeffrey Christian. The incentive to hold gold is a lot lower. It's going from west to east now, said Joseph Stevens, head of trading at MKS Pamp SA, a gold refining and trading firm. We are trying to keep up as best we can. So sounds like huge outflows from the west to the east here. According to Bloomberg, the rotation of metal around the world is part of a gold market cycle that has repeated for decades. When investors retreat and prices drop, Asian buying picks up and precious metals flow east, helping to put a floor on the gold price during times of weakness. Then when gold eventually rallies again, much of it returns to sit in bank vaults beneath the streets of New York, London, and Zurich. Since peaking in March, gold prices have tumbled 18% as the Federal Reserve's aggressive rate hikes caused massive liquidation by financial investors. More than 527 tons of gold has poured out of New York and London vaults that back the two biggest Western markets since the end of April, according to data from the CME Group and London Bullion Market Association. At the same time, shipments are rising into big Asian gold consumers like China, whose imports hit a four-year high in August. Yeah, so this is quite the chart that they have here, gold flowing east. And at the top of the chart, you see China with a positive 160 tons basically double the next one, India. At the bottom of the chart is USA minus 136 tons, and that's way more than the second highest exporter of the gold, which is Australia at minus 34 tons. So USA gold is eaten up by China. Now, according to the article, this is all fine. Okay, this is just part of the cycle. Okay. While plenty of gold is heading east, it's still not enough to meet demand. Gold in Dubai and Istanbul, or on the Shanghai Gold Exchange, has traded at multi-year premiums to the London benchmark in recent weeks, according to MKS PAMP, a sign that buying is outstripping imports. Quote, demand typically picks up when prices fall, said Philip Kalbwich, managing director of Hong Kong-based consultant Precious Metals Insights. Quote, buyers want to source metal at the lower price, and in the local physical market in question, there may not be sufficient metal available when the price falls, so the local premium increases, end quote. In India, it is silver that is seeing big premiums. The differential has soared recently to $1, more than triple the usual level, according to Consultancy Metals Focus. Quote, right now, the demand for silver is huge as traders restock, said Shirag Sheth, the firm's principal consultant in Mumbai, premiums could remain elevated during the festival season that concludes with Diwali. Analysts say that much of the precious metals feeding Asia's appetite is coming out of vaults run by CME Group, which backed the COMEX futures market in New York. So again, this is Bloomberg, okay? And finally, MKS Pamps Stevens said, 
Quote, getting stuff on boats or on planes is a bit harder than it used to be. It's really just a classic example of demand far outpacing supply. Okay, more metals news here. Iron ore prices rise as China port inventory shrinks. This is Reuters via mining.com. And we'll kind of go through this one quickly. Iron ore prices rose on Monday as portside inventory in top steel producer China shrank during the Golden Week holidays to the lowest since mid-July indicating strong demand for the steelmaking ingredient. More demand out of Asia, this time for iron ore. Adding to supply concerns, threats of flooding remained in Australia, China's biggest iron ore supplier, as authorities warned of another intense weather system that could bring more downpours. Uh, Scrolling down a bit, uh, Chinese steel prices are likely to rebound in October with market fundamentals improving and macroeconomic support policies coming into force. My Steel Consultancy said, citing its chief analyst, Wang Shan Hua. Caution is likely to prevail, however, ahead of this month's Chinese Communist Party Congress. Quote, the National Party Congress is set to commence in less than a week, with traders eagerly watching any and all policy announcements around the critical event, Westpac analysts said in a note. So all sorts of drama around the metals here. Quickly over to the Northern Miner, Saul Gold becomes sole owner of Cascabel with Cornerstone by. It's by Cecilia Jamazmi. Ecuador-focused Saul Gold is merging with Canadian junior Cornerstone Capital Resources to secure a 100% ownership of the Cascabel Copper Gold Project in Ecuador. The friendly deal, Saul Gold's third official attempt to take over the Ontario-based junior, values it at $107.9 million. Under the terms of the agreement, Cornerstone shares will be exchanged for Saul Gold's on the basis of 15 Saul Gold shares for every Cornerstone share, Saul Gold has the option to pay up to 20% of the deal in cash. If it chooses not to do so, its shareholders will hold 80% of the new enlarged firm. Cornerstone shares skyrocketed on the news, climbing as much as 35% in Toronto to $3.69 each. Saul Gold shares closed down 1.37% in London on Friday at 17.22 pence. But we're almost 17% higher in Toronto on the news, leaving the company with market capitalization of $431 million US. And we have a quote from Cornerstone President and CEO Brooke McDonald. This merger transaction makes sense for both sets of shareholders. The merger allows our shareholders to maintain exposure to the world-class Cascabel project and is a step towards maximizing value. So they finally got this deal done. It is considered the sixth largest copper mine. You can read all about it on northernminer.com. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, just a quick look at the 10-year bond. So, the U.S. 10-year government bond is trading at 3.898, so that is 0.3% higher than last week. So pretty significant, actually, so higher. And turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on October 11th, gold is trading at $1,665.38 per ounce. That is $42 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $19.38 per ounce. That is $1.54 lower than last week. 
Platinum is trading at $893.11 per ounce. That is $14 lower than last week. And Palladium is trading at $2,192.29 per ounce. That is $77 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is down three cents at $3.44 per pound. Aluminum is up seven cents at $1.06 per pound. Lead is up eight cents at 94 cents per pound. Nickel is up three cents at $10.14 per pound. Tin is down 32 cents at $9.07 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $23.26 per pound, and zinc is $0.04 higher at $1.39 per pound. What do we see? Big pullback in precious metals, basically, you know, midway between where we were last week and two weeks ago. So big pullback in precious metals. And industrial metals hold steady with even a couple of bounces from lead, nickel, zinc, and aluminum. So even a little bit of wind in their sails there. So not a bad showing in industrial metals. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have George Hemingway, Managing Partner, Head of Innovation Practice at Stratalis, in conversation with Northern Miner reporter and production editor Blair McBride at the Global Mining Symposium, which took place last week. George Hemingway is managing partner and leads the innovation practice at Stratalis, where he advises the leaders of companies, organizations, and countries on the future and how to succeed in uncertain times. Blair does a great job of getting to the core of George Hemingway's message to the mining industry and how it can improve its public image. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. So George Hemingway is managing partner and leads the innovation practice at Stratalis, where he advises the leaders of companies and organizations and countries on the future and how to succeed in uncertain times. Through his work, he has collaborated with the world's leading industrial and mining companies, ranging from Vail to Tech, BHP to BASF, to set their future visions and reimagine what is possible and transform their businesses especially in the most challenging areas such as greenhouse gas reduction, tailings, safer mine of the futures, and the like. George is considered one of the leading futurists in the mining industry, and his work has won numerous awards, including SME's Robert E. Murray Innovation Award, and has delivered over 100 keynotes at global forums ranging from NASA to the World Mining Congress. In addition to corporate boards, he is passionate about supporting the next generation of leaders. As a board member to the Chamber Orchestra of New York, Moonmark Aerospace and the Lassonde Institute of Mining at the University of Toronto. He holds an MBA from Columbia Business School and a Bachelor of Science from the Stern School of Business at NYU. All right, so you might have heard, and we've been talking about this a bit today, about how young people have low interest in mining as a career. So if I might self-reference a little bit, I did a recent story for the Northern Miner and uh, I cited a poll conducted by Abacus Poll and the Mining Industry Human Resources Council, the MIHR, that showed only 11% of 3,000 youth polled said they would be likely to work in mining. It also found that 70% of those polled definitely or probably would not consider going into mining. And other sectors like healthcare, high tech, and the arts 
ranked higher for preferred careers. So that in itself doesn't seem very encouraging for the industry, but it looks even worse when we contrast that with a report from the MIHR in 2020 that said the mining industry in Canada would need almost 80,000 new hires between 2020 and 2030 to replace workers retiring. So we have this declining interest while we also have the demand for people in mining rising. This seems kind of dire. So my first question for you is, what should we make of all this? Well, I mean, I think it's absolutely real. You know, we've been doing similar type of work. And, and I think I looked at something uh, more broadly that said it 40% of the workforce was looking to leave their jobs in, in 2023 alone. And another quarter of them are going to leave in the next five years. And, and another quarter or so are planning on leaving the industry altogether. So it's very similar you know, type of data that, that, that you've shown. And, and I think that, you know, one of the, one of the big challenges is that despite, you know, this need, despite the fact that, that companies are making more and more money, you can't just throw money at the problem. I think it's, it's not a universal truth, but COVID has caused a lot of people to take a fresh look at, at why they do what they do. You see it in the great resignation. You see it in people changing cities. You see it in people changing or getting divorced, or getting married. It's almost as if we're having some sort of global midlife crisis. And that challenge is facing all companies. Mining is, is not the only one, but mining is not immune. And so I think that people need a reason to be. They need a reason to wake up in the morning. They need a reason to work. They need a reason that is more than a paycheck. They need a why. They need a, not, not just what they do, but they need to understand why they do what they do. And I mean, if you, if you think about it, right, why are you here? Why, why, why am I here? Are, are you here because you have to be? Or are you here because you want to be? No one was watching. Would you still be here? The truth is that a lot of folks, given the choice in the work that they have today, are relatively discontent. And, and that discontent is something that stretches not just to their work, it stretches across the world that we're in right now. We've all been locked up for a couple of years. And we're seeing that discontent, you know, with society and with work and with labor sort of coming out in a lot of different ways. ways. I and mean, we've seen it for years, really. If you think about it, it was Tahir Square. And you see it in, in Occupy Wall Street. You see it in the last couple of years with Black Lives Matter. You see it coming up right now with people protesting against uh, um, the 1%. Gosh, you, you see it in everything. You see it even in the rise of, of populism in, in Trumps and Bolsonaros and the like, or the rise of socialism. You see people are generally discontent. And if you're not the half of society that gravitates towards what you know is secure, like tradition or family or religion or work, you're the half that tends to protest these things. And because of that discontent, people are looking for answers or they're looking for scapegoats. And big businesses like mining, automotive, like aviation, like pharmaceuticals, like banking are very much in the crosshairs. So until industries, and in our particular case, mining, can effectively communicate the value of what we do, our purpose, and connect it in a real way to the needs of of the next generation and the existing generation and what matters to them, I think we're going to continue to see this sort of challenge. And doubly so in industries like mining that are exceedingly provincial businesses, living in a world that is no longer communicating in provincial ways. Anything that can be seen can be judged. Anything that can be judged can be canceled. And mining is no different. So something fundamentally has to shift in the communication and the equation. Right. I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. I do want to come back to what you said about the communication, but I do have a, a little follow-up question there for you. Yeah, sure. 
As someone who focuses on uncertainty in the industry, is there yeah. another way for us to look at the industry trends that I outlined when I when I started? Sure. There's always another way of looking at a, at a challenge. I mean, and let's face it, as much as we're in a panic right now, it's funny, I was listening to the last talk, right? Anthony was saying thesis and antithesis and talking about ESGs uh, and the like and, and um, you know, folks being sued down in the United States. And, you know, it's interesting is as much as we're in a panic right now, I think everything will eventually work its way out. So, I mean, you know, three years ago, we were all in our offices complaining about being in our offices. A year ago, folks were still hunkered down, wondering how you're ever going to get out of COVID. You know, now we're learning to live with COVID and it's, it's little furry variants. And the majority of people have, have moved on. So we're remarkably resilient. Uh, companies are remarkably resilient. And regardless of the fact that um, we're now looking at this labor challenge as being you know, something that is a, a unstoppable force hitting an immovable object, I think it will, as the market always does, balance its, its way out. I think one of the things that we've had a lot of is good times. And we've had you know, China growth. We've had a relatively strong economy, at least, and relatively is the important word. And I think it's going to come to an end. People as a whole tend to underestimate how quickly change happens. And the same happens with technology. They tend to underestimate how quickly any one technology will mature and overestimate how long it'll take to make an impact. And that's why 10 years ago, the mining buzz was around mechanization and automation and robotics and AI and how it was all going to take our jobs and how people would be protesting. And it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet because technology takes a long time to mature. But it takes a very short time to adopt, even in an industry like mining, when it really reaches a level of maturity in the top of the S-curve that matters. So I think that what's going to happen is we're actually going to need less of the people that we think we need in the jobs that we think we need them in. And more people are going to be needed in jobs where we don't yet realize we're going to need them in. And what's interesting about that is that the mining industry currently right now is competing for a lot of these high-tech, high-smarts, divergent-thinking, collaborative jobs with the tech industry, which, by the way, if you haven't noticed, isn't doing that great this year. So if you look at it, a lot of the jobs we think we're going to need, we're not going to need. A lot of the jobs we are going to need and can't get a hold of are going to suddenly become available. But the real challenge in all of that will be even if you have the right people, even if you have the right technology, are you actually going to be able to transform with those people? And I think the answer of whether the industry is going to be able to do that is very similar to the answer of whether the industry is going to be able to recruit the people it needs. And that's whether it's able to connect to them in a way that matters to them. I just want to ask you for a few couple more specifics on that. You said that the, the jobs that we think we'll need, maybe we won't. Mm -hmm. and others down the road we will. Yeah. Spell that out a bit more? Yeah, I'll spell it out exactly. I mean, so you look at something like traditional job, like someone that's doing bolting, right? Someone that's that's doing ground support and working at the face and clearing out lifter holes and inserting PVC tubes and scaling or handling mesh and applying it. A lot of those jobs that are sort of traditional, what people think of as as, as mining and production, I think are going to fundamentally shift. I think they're going to shift to either tele-remote or full autonomy, or they're going to be run from a different kind of place. And I think one of the interesting challenges about that is it's not just the work itself that's going to get different. It's the fact that people are going to need to collaborate in ways that they haven't needed to collaborate before. So as an example, that is not blue collar based, 
right? But that is more um, white collar based. You look at the issue of something like tailings management and the long-term requirement to reduce the overall risk associated with tailings, the provision associated with tailings for social reasons, for financial reasons, you name it. I'm not even going to bother going into them because most of your audience understands that. Now, in order to do that, traditionally, you'd have someone that managed tailings. So you have an individual in a business that was a silo that was doing that. But effectively, managing tailings means going way, way back into the mining process and understanding how you break, how you process, what you do with it after you've processed it. And then it, it requires you to go further downstream as well and look at how you do closure and how you do long-term legacy asset management. The kind of collaborative mindset that's needed isn't necessarily the kind of collaborative mindset we've hired for. We hire people and have for years not to be renaissance thinkers, but to be experts at what they do. You're a financial analyst, so we make you controller. You're a controller, so we make you head of finance. You're head of finance, so we make you CFO. And then someone makes you CEO, and you don't know a darn thing about anything except finance. And so I think it's not just those blue-collar jobs, but it's that white-collar collaborative thinking and that mindset of hiring people with that mold that is going to become one of the challenges as well. And, and that'll also be one of the things that I think we're not fully prepared for. So uh, going back to the story I wrote, a factor that was cited by some of the younger people I spoke with for my story is that many youth are deterred from mining by its reputation, however accurate that is. Hmm. Of, of mining being a dangerous and environmentally destructive industry. In fact, I just had two conversations with people over the past couple of weeks who, who said that exact, uh, expressed that exact idea to me. Yeah. So in general, how is the mining industry doing in addressing that perception, however true or false it is? Um, I, I think the mining industry, and I put that in quotes for a second because I want to I talk about it uh, a little bit more deeply. I, I think the mining industry, especially the big miners, are trying to do the right things, right? Uh, they're advertising, they're messaging. I even think in Australia, there was a kind of cool campaign you know, around you know, what would happen to a world without mining and airplanes disappear and stuff like that. And that's kind of that's nifty and that's helpful, right? But I, I think that while the industry as a whole isn't just sitting back and waiting for showstoppers to happen. They're out there saying the right things, but the challenge is that good messaging and good advertising are only one part of the equation. And they're the part of the equation, I think, that works better with, with regulators. It works better with governments. It may help you even a little bit with recruiting. But I think it doesn't move the needle quickly enough in the area that really matters, which is in getting people to trust the mining industry and to share its purpose and to believe that it's something that matters to them and that they would like to be allied with. I was listening yesterday, I happened to be at, in, in Denver today at a conference, and I was listening yesterday to a gentleman, and he was saying, I don't know about you. He was saying on stage, he was saying, I, I don't know about you, but when people ask me what I do, I pause for just a microsecond, and I wonder, is this, is this, a, is this a safe space? And I tell them I work in, in mining. And this guy is an executive, is C-level of one of the big mining companies, right? So I think when it comes to moving the needle in sharing a purpose and a trust, you can't leave it to the mining industry to do that. And when I mean the mining industry, I mean the big companies. People don't trust industry bodies and corporations to tell them the truth. And even if they believe you, it doesn't resonate in a way that's authentic and moving and matters. 
And it doesn't help that the industry itself doesn't speak with a single voice anyway, because oil sands have nothing to do with diamonds. Potash has nothing to do with lithium. Base metals miners try their best to make sure that you ignore the fact that they once had coal assets. And the only thing that brings them together is the fact that the world lumps us together as taking stuff out of the ground. I think what has to happen for the mining industry to change its perception with people that, that it needs to join it is it needs a different kind of movement. And the voice that speaks on behalf of the industry as an advocate for the industry has to come from a different place. It has to come from us, the individuals sharing our own personal stories. And I think that's that's one of the things that has to happen. Could you give some examples of companies or initiatives that are going in the right direction in that regard? In mining? Hmm. It's, a, it's an interesting question. I struggle with that one in mining. I, I have to be I have to be really, really frank with you. I I because I can't think of a company, a single company that actively encourages its employees to go out in the community and share their own personal stories, their own personal why they are in mining. There are some companies that do it in very interesting, specific ways. Um, not exactly the same thing you're talking about. And I'll, I'll pause for a second and, and throw Agnico into the mix. They're, they're quite good, for example, at more transparently communicating with their investors, even letting them speak to their mine managers when they visit and so forth and so on. And I found, I found that was quite, quite compelling in, in how they engage with communities and how they engage with investors. I think in mining, no, I can't really give you a good example. I can give you a good example outside of mining. Companies you know, that are really good at getting people to advocate for them are companies that are able to connect what they do in a, in a specific way to stuff that matters to us. So um, popular example of that might be, might be Apple or Tesla, right? And Tesla is one of my favorites because if you think about it, people tattoo Tesla on their arm. There's no greater advocate for Tesla than you or I or your neighbor, despite Elon Musk. They still have this magnificent brand halo as if they take something that's essentially almost a commodity, right? A cell phone. And they manage to make you feel as if they are not just insulating their brands, but doing something for good for humanity at like the exact same time. And the irony is, right, that these are two companies that need the metals and the minerals that mining provides almost more than anybody else. But what they've done somewhat successfully is they managed to draw this thin green line between their solar panels and their tunnel boring machines and their cars and their flamethrowers and whatever the hell else they sell and the, the stuff that goes into it. So what they're trying to do, I think, is build goodwill and trust by broadcasting a higher purpose, a purpose that resonates with us in such a way that you and I go out and it'd be like, you know, I got the coolest new iPhone and because of it, I'm somewhat cool or they tattoo Tesla on their arm or whatever the heck it is they do. And so I, I think that that is what the industry somehow needs to do. And it, it's a movement that's going to have to happen. Well, it's, it really is a grassroots movement in a way, but it has to be something that, that comes in many ways from the companies themselves, turning us into advocates for the industry. Make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Could you be more specific about where the industry could be doing a better job with its public perception? I'm just going to say, like, it is a fact that mining is extractive. And a lot of people, that's, that's all they need to know. They, they, their mind is closed at that point. How do we get past that? How could there be a better job with the public perception of that? Well, I mean, I, I think I've, I've touched on it a little bit. You're right. Mining is extractive. By its very nature, it's not sustainable, right? And so <laughs> at some point, right, eventually, for any one commodity, I guess mining has to stop because we will eventually run out of it, right? I think that the way that the public perception can be changed from mining industry is by taking the focus, ironically, off of mining and 
I, I think that that one of the biggest challenges is that when we sit inside and we speak with ourselves, we have a, this sort of echo chamber that exists. You know, we're like, well, of course, we're good for the world and we're doing the right thing and we matter. But the truth is that it really doesn't matter so much that we speak to ourselves as much as it matters that we speak to others. We have to get everyone to understand why they matter. Look, I'll give you an example. If you take someone that works in GHG reduction in a mining company, tracking their MAC curve and tracking energy usage and all that, you could say that they are a energy analyst. And that's great. That's what they do. But you ask them, what's the good they do for society? Why do they do it? Well, someone that, that is reducing GHGs is protecting the planet. Someone who is working in tailings isn't just monitoring you know, for static liquefaction or piezometers. They are protecting communities. Someone that is working uh, underground in seismicity as a geotech is saving an operator's life. And getting people to understand why what they do is so critical, I think, is, is important. And then it comes the tricky bit, because GHGs and tailings and you know, geotechs for seismicity, that's easy, right? But does the person in procurement understand that why what they're doing is bettering the world? Does the person in digital that builds a little app that brings the scoop so that you know what time, you know, at what point the rocks are showing up in place, do they understand why what they do matters? I don't think we do a good job at all of helping people bring that message out. And mining is way more important than what Tesla does. It's more important than cell phones. It's more important than cars. It's a fundamental thing that drives the world. It's like agriculture or, or medicine. A farmer doesn't just grow corn, they feed the world. And everyone that works in farming, whether they're buying fertilizer or milling, knows that what they do, it's a halo. A nurse doesn't deliver drugs, she's saving lives and healing. And that halo, that purpose, that understanding of what we do is less important than why we do it, is something that we need to cultivate as an industry. And if you will, you know, that's something that the, the, the medical industry, uh, despite it's not pharma, but medical in general, doctors or, or agriculture does really well. And uh, frankly, mining doesn't. So you mentioned purpose, and this uh, yeah. links well with my next question for you. So um, another factor that came up in my interviews is work-life balance uh, mm -hmm. for millennials and the so-called great resignation, and that mining companies should be making more effort to accommodate young people. So yeah. for example, shifts of two weeks on at a mine and then two weeks off, it can turn people off who want to raise a family or people who don't really like being out in remote areas. Yeah. And, and that's understandable. But at the same time, maybe the industry is missing a chance to recruit young talent by not being flexible enough with working conditions or compensation packages or, or what have you. So how do you think companies should deal with that? What have you seen in your work with companies uh, changing the way they try and recruit and retain people? So I think that the last year, right, is a, bit of a, is a bit of a wild, weird anomaly. And we don't know yet quite know where it's going to shake out. So, but even taking that into account more, more broadly to your question, I think that, you know, the curious thing is it's hard to recruit people for fly in, fly out, and to compensate them more and so forth and so on. And, and I want to deal with that in just a second. I think giving people more flexibility to feel like they matter and what they do matters is important. And, and one of the concepts that we've sort of seen, and you used to see it a lot with high-performing 
leaders, right? You would you would take someone that you thought was going to be an XC or an SVP or an EVP or something like that, and you would allow people to float from one type of work to another to get a more diverse set of skills than they would have passed, uh, they would have uh, had in the past to understand a little bit more, you know, the industry that they're in, the work they do, the company they're in, and to feel like they're sort of adding value. And I think emphasizing, you know, what people do and why it matters and emphasizing both purpose and belonging. So why what you do matters and, and the fact that you're part of a team that's bigger than just your little silo is one of those things that has to go hand in hand. And I think really great corporations that do that have a way to make people feel like everything they do matters, not just to the organization, but to each other. And so I think from a recruiting point of view, giving people a broader runway, a, a chance to try a diverse set of skills, to move around, to feel like they're part of a bigger team is one of the things that companies are doing in order to recruit. And this apart from all the standard stuff, which you've got to onboard people well and mentor them well, and you've got to pay them well and so forth and so on. I think when it comes to things like fly in, fly out, it's interesting because the people that I know that, that do fly in, fly out are all women, all under the age of 35 or 40, all really kind of adventurous uh, types, and they love it. They love the concept. But there are parts, especially related to sort of diversity and, and safety um, and making a more congenial atmosphere for people to feel like fly and fly out is a place they would want to be, especially more diverse groups. That I think is an issue that 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 isn't fully addressed. In fact, it's not not properly addressed well enough. And so I, I think those are, if, if you will, that, that's my that's my approach in it. And happy to speak on that second one a little bit more if you like. Well, uh, could you identify some leaders in that effort or or give some examples of the things they're doing that is speaking to that and and like you said, making people feel valued in their recruitment? Yeah. So I mean, there are some companies that that you easily could rise to the top of the pile because they are purpose-driven or even mission-driven enterprises, right? Places like Patagonia. And that's that's kind of easy because those companies attract a certain individual that resonate with that mission. And so because of that, they do a particularly good job with retention. They're quite flexible with their people and so forth and so on. But then you have companies that that oddly you wouldn't think belong on the list because they wouldn't come to you like top of mind as folks that are doing a decent job with this. Uh, companies like BlackRock, companies like... Um, I guess consulting is a tough business, but nonetheless, um, Accenture and the like, who are doing a, a better job, I think, of, of recruiting folks um, who share a purpose, who share a certain uh, culture, who are um, more open to a diverse and a collaborative type of workforce, because these are places where collaboration is sort of key. And, and they're attracting people who, yeah, want to make money, sure. It's really important because you can't take that away from the coin. People are always like, well, we have a recruiting problem. Well, you pay 20% less than everybody else. Why don't we start with that? Because about 65% of people leave their job because they're not paid enough as much as we like to be. Well, you know, tell me what to do except to raise the cost of raise what we pay. Well, okay, can I start with that? But, you know, if you ignore that and you're playing parity, then uh, attracting people, giving them a workplace where they can collaborate giving them a workplace where they feel not just a sense of purpose, but a sense of belonging. I think these are companies that are doing a pretty, pretty decent job of that. 
And then you have bits of pieces of certain companies where you see that come to life. I have seen that come to life in parts of BHP, for example, right? There are groups within BHP led by certain people that build that kind of camaraderie and folks are gravitated to that. But overall, you, you really have to ask at a company-wide level, you see less and less of it, I think, in the mining industry itself. And, and part of that is what I've discussed, a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, a sense of seeing a future, of understanding a why. And that path to be able to say, well, you know, yes, you may be a, a geotech, but that's not the only way up tomorrow we're going to put you somewhere else. You can learn the entire mining business as a whole. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. I'm going to switch gears a bit in, uh, and turn to the issue of uh, diversity, which uh, yeah. has been mentioned several times today as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, d diversity and that mining needs to attract uh, more people of color, indigenous people and women. And as an example, the MIHR found in a 2022 report that on education that women made up only 16% of undergraduate mining engineering enrollments between 2016 and 2020. So, I mean, today, this is 2022, it's, mm -hmm. it's not 1972. Society has changed a lot. Uh, most companies, if not all, believe in diversity and, and want a more diverse workforce. But the question is, are they doing enough to build up that diverse workforce? How do you mm -hmm. see that issue? So, I mean, let, let, me, let me ask a bit of a wicked question. You said that mining needs to build up more diversity and more people of color and more, more women. And so I would ask the question back to the mining industry, do you really? And why? So if the answer is, well, because everybody says so, and that's what the world looks like, and if we don't do it, we're going to get in trouble. And I submit to you that that is the answer deep down that a lot of people have then that's a bit of a challenge. It's a bit of a challenge because you don't actually understand the value of diversity. You don't actually understand the value of different thinking. So I just look at the word diversity itself. You know, there's one thing that someone is indigenous or someone is, is black or, or, or someone is a woman or whatever the case may be. Choose, choose your definition of diversity as you like. But actually understanding and respecting how those opinions and different ways of thinking and different cultures and different points of view actually add value, that's a little bit tougher. And again, mind you, mining industry, right, as, as much as I may be like, well, you know, does mining understand it, is really no different in many ways than many other industries. Right? We could have a very similar conversation on, you know, steel milling or, um, you know, locomotives and transportation or shipping. But first having that, 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 that understanding that people with diverse thoughts, different thinking, different points of view can actually add value to how you work and how you improve and the kind of company you are and actually codifying what the heck that actually means and bringing that to life is something that most companies don't do well. We have a hard time collaborating between the geotechs and the long-range planning and the operations and the strategy people, let alone bringing in people that wouldn't naturally even look like the communities that we grew up in where the mine is. So first things first is that companies need to actually understand, codify why diversity adds value. And I think the next thing they have to do, as I mentioned, is you've got to be able to attract what is that more diverse group that is coming up through the ranks by giving them a reason why your industry is an industry that appeals to them deeply. And then the third thing is you have to make it safe to be diverse. And it's an interesting thing. 
I had a conversation with a, a lady who worked on site um, for years, was fly and fly out. That's mostly her whole career before she pivoted to corporate yesterday. And what she said was, you have to make it more difficult to do the wrong thing than it is to do the right thing. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. She had a much, much, much cleverer way of saying it than, than I do. But that is, that is true. You know, she was telling me a story that she worked on site. And, and, and we were with another woman at the time was one of 800 people at a camp and, and one of the only expat women. And, you know, one of the things that was interesting is that, you know, they couldn't get the facilities, you know, washrooms for the, for the female. So this is an individual. And again, we're not talking like 40 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. This is now. That literally had to go use the men's washroom until men were uncomfortable enough to say, you know what, maybe we should get a women's, women's washroom. That's not the way. It has to be. You have to have a situation where from leadership down, people are actively going out of their way to make it an equal and level playing field, not just in promotion and stuff like that, but in simply in those cultural things where people don't just feel a purpose or what they do, but they feel a sense of belonging in that place. And a lot of the conversation you have, right, is, is you have women in mining coming together, working together, very important men who are advocates for them. But I think it's important to not just be an advocate, but to be an, um, an activist. You know, you've got to be an active advocate for someone. You have to go out of their way, you know, to actually say, am I putting myself in their shoes? And how can I help promote these individuals and their needs? And I think until that happens and we have a level playing field, uh, I think it's going to be challenged to attract uh, a more diverse set, set of individuals. And uh, you took the words out of my mouth. Uh, with what you said about the diversity of thought uh, versus uh, so-called diversity and what the, what the goal really is. Yeah. Um, I guess my last question for you, if, if I have time, is which companies, which initiatives stand out in that regard? Um, I mean, again, I think I, t I touched on a, on a couple of them, right? Especially from, from outside the industry. I, I think there, there is one thing that I want to point out. I, I think that you are seeing more and more companies who are advocates or diverse groups in within the mining industry, apart from the folks that are outside the mining industry, the Royal Banks of Canada's, the Black Rocks, the, the Patagonias, and so forth and so on. I think you are seeing more and more of that, and you are seeing more and more, um, not just women, but 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 broad diverse groups being willing to speak up for themselves and to have a voice at events, uh, to have a voice uh, more broadly communicating uh, with folks in the industry. I I have some hope. I have hope that, that that these groups are stronger than any kind of adversity. I have hope that the generations that come and those that are advocates for them grow stronger every day, and, and those that, that don't feel that way eventually retire. And I have hope because um, despite living in New York City, which is not, by the way, in case you didn't know, the, the home of the mining cheer crowd, uh, my daughter comes up to me a couple of weeks ago, and I say, hey, hon, what are you, what are you? she's 15. What are you thinking of doing? And have you thought about career? And she said, well, I'm kind of thinking of being an engineer, kind of engineer. Well, you know, you're on the phone, dad, maybe a mining engineer. I said, well, well, why that? I said, well, it kind of seems like an interesting place. Plus, it sounds like they could use a little bit of help. So I, 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 have, I have hope, you know, and for all of the negativity and all of the, you know, sort of the down stuff we talk about, let's bear in mind that, you know, we're focusing on the negative in order, the stuff that we do, and it's great stuff. And that's why I'm in this industry. It's why you're in this industry. It is remarkable. 
There is so much that matters and never before has understanding, you know, what matters about what we do and why what we do matters been more important than it is now. And it just, it's up to us to go out there and communicate it, not just in forums like this, but in forums where mining doesn't naturally come up. Thank you for listening to this week's Northern Miner podcast. Thank you to Blair McBride and to George Hemingway for giving another excellent interview. Fireside chat coming up on October 12th. Tomorrow, we have a virtual mining conference courtesy of the Canadian Mining Journal called Reimagine Mining. Registration is free. So just go to events.northernminer.com and you can start to attend tomorrow. So do not miss that. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, take care.